No area of activity has so distinguished natural intelligence from artificial intelligence than creative arts like music, drama, poetry, painting, and dance. While AI researchers have built software that tries to create art, the results have been profoundly disappointing. Weird dramas, strange poetry, and sounds that only the authors would call music. In this episode of Mind the Gap, Dialogues on Artificial Intelligence, we will consider the application of AI techniques to help people better understand one of the greatest paintings in the world, Rembrandt Van Rijn's The Night Watch. This famous painting is the premier cultural icon of the Netherlands and the centerpiece of the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. The painting has a long and complex history. It has been housed in several locations over the centuries. It has been the subject of numerous conservation projects over its nearly four centuries of existence. One of the less known episodes in the painting's past occurred in 1715 when pieces of the colossal painting were cut off in order to fit it into the Amsterdam town hall. The cutting was particularly egregious on the left side of the painting, whence the images of three people in the original were lost. While the removed sections of the canvas have not been found, a small copy which survives was made by another painter not long after the night watch was completed. Working from images of the copy, along with remarkably detailed photographic images of the original, Dr. Robert Erdmann has used AI to approximately reconstruct the lost portions of the canvas. Dr. Erdmann is the senior scientist at the Rijksmuseum and also a professor at the University of Amsterdam, where he holds appointments in two departments, the Institute of Physics and the Department of Conservation and Restoration of Cultural Heritage. The objective of the reconstruction work was to make them as similar as possible to the original. In today's episode, we will discuss with Dr. Erdman how he went about this remarkable and inspiring recreation. Hello, I'm Mark Donner, a computer scientist. And I am Roland Trope, a national security lawyer. We are your hosts for this episode of Mind the Gap, Dialogues on Artificial Intelligence. In addition, we have two more hosts. Ama Adams, a national security lawyer, cannot be with us today. And I'm Charles Palmer, another computer scientist. Good evening, Dr. Erdmann. How did you get involved initially with AI? Um, well, AI is something that I've been following for quite some time. Um, in my previous position, I was a professor at the uh, University of Arizona, working on completely different things. Um, but among them was to try to understand the relation between material properties and material structure. And um, there were such amazing advances in AI at the time that I figured, well, I should, I should probably learn about this field and see if there's some way to, to apply it to the physical sciences. Um, so back then, uh, I didn't really have access to the right hardware or um, really the developments that enable the application towards physics weren't really there yet, but it's something I kind of uh, kept my finger on uh, to monitor it. And um, yeah, it's it's had such a massive explosion in utility all across computer science um, and now in the conservation world um, that I just decided to stick with it and learn everything I could about it. So is it fair to say that you, 
you got interested in it early on and you've kind of self-taught yourself or have you taken courses also to get up to speed? Because that sounds like a formidable challenge. Yeah, it, it turns out that most of AI, the, the basic concepts are actually quite simple. I mean, if you understand linear algebra, and, and I did because I was also a professor in applied mathematics um, at my last university, um, then you, you really have quite a head start. Um, but certainly um, any online class I could get my hands on, I've, I've taken it. Um, some of the um, Stanford courses by uh, Andre Karpathy, uh, about um, convolutional neural networks for um, <clears throat> for computer vision and so on were um, classes that I took when they first came out. Um, and yeah, really, th these days, um, there are so many excellent tutorial videos or entire courses on YouTube that uh, anyone who really wants to can do it, I think. Could we ask you, how did you come to be working as senior scientist at the Rijksmuseum? I didn't even know they had a senior scientist. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the story is, uh, is long and winding, so I'll, I'll abbreviate it. But um, basically, in my, my last job, I was working on something completely different. Um, basically, my main project was uh, solidification of uh, aluminum alloys in microgravity. So I had an experiment on the International Space Station. Um, yeah, about as far away from museum things as you can imagine. Um, but one of the... Uh, women I shared a, an office with in graduate school actually went on to working in the conservation field. And I ended up visiting her um, at the Art Institute of Chicago and got a really, uh, really nice behind the scenes tour. Um, and before this, I didn't really have any concept of what happened at a museum. I sort of thought of an art museum was the place where art went to die. Um, and so this really opened up my eyes to all of the amazing things that are happening behind the scenes to make sure that the museum continues to run, of course, but studying um, all of the, the artworks, understanding where they came from, um, what has happened to them since they were made, what will happen to them under various conservation treatments and so on. And at that point, I decided, wow, this is, this is so cool. I mean, I, I had no idea that people did that for a living. So I decided to... Um, sort of fake it till I made it, um, as they say. And um, I had been doing some really large image processing work for my, my uh, space solidification experiments. And so I asked if there was a way that this might transfer over. And it turned out that they were struggling with stitching x-ray films, because when you x-ray a painting to see what might be painted behind it, um, you use chest size x-rays. So if you have a really big painting, then you have a lot of x-rays and um, in those days, this was 2004 or five. Um, that's really a lot more than the average computer could handle. So I, I sort of injected myself into that. And um, in the end, uh, I got to serve um, as a resident fellow here in the Netherlands, um, working with other museums to try to apply imaging and computation technologies um, in the museum field uh, at the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study. And at the end of that, I was basically invited to come here permanently. So um, I agreed to do so if I could uh, somehow find a position in a university at the same time as a, as a museum, because I love the academic freedom, but I also wanted to make sure that the work I was doing was directly immediately applicable instead of you know, writing papers about what I would do. I wanted to make sure that it was in the hands of people who are going to use it now. Um, and uh, here I am seven years later.
before you took the position, was there a senior scientist or did they create the position for you? Um, there was not a senior scientist position. I mean, now, now we have a science um, department with a number of student researchers and postdocs and so on. But at the time, I was the only scientist at the museum. Yeah. In our preliminary conversation last week, you mentioned that the reconstruction effort was part of a larger project involving Rembrandt's The Night Watch. Can you give us some idea of the nature of both projects, their relationship, and what their uh, comparative efforts are in each? Yeah, so um, as mentioned, the, the Night Watch is um, probably the most important uh, artwork in the museum. A large fraction of our visitors come uh, specifically to see the painting. Um, and uh, the museum is almost a cathedral um, built around this painting. It's at the end of this long gallery of honors. So, um, we are in the middle of what we call Operation Night Watch, um, which is a multi-year, multi-million euro uh, initiative split into two halves. Um, the first is a research half, and the second is a conservation half. And the idea is um, that we will uh, sort of think about taking a patient to, to a doctor. Um, the first half is like conducting a full body scan. So we're going to try to use every scientific technique available, all the most modern imaging techniques and computation where appropriate to um, obtain a comprehensive understanding of what the state of the painting is now, how it was made, how what layers uh, have been built up, what conservation problems may exist. Um, and then uh, we're, we're done with that first half. And the second half is um, to be completed. Uh, and that will involve a, a conservation treatment of some sort. So we're still in the process of digesting all the scientific results and deciding what kind of conservation treatment will be appropriate. Um, and this whole operation, what's unusual about this is that the whole thing is done in front of the public. Um, so there's a big glass house, as we call it, a four-sided um, glass enclosure that's built around the painting. It's quite a large um, a picture. It's uh, four and a half meters wide by, um, uh, so that's what, 15 feet. Um, and um, a little under four meters tall. So it's a really big painting. And uh, all of the research, as well as all of the future conservation treatments will be done inside this glass house in front of the public while, while they watch. So um, the, the reconstruction, this missing parts that you mentioned, um, is being uh, displayed to the public right now in this three month sort of interregnum between the uh, research phase and the conservation phase while we digest the research data to decide what the conservation treatment will be with, with the help of outside experts uh, and uh, people from many different disciplines to make sure that we really make the very best conservation treatment that, that we can make. Can I ask two other brief questions? First, yeah, sure. for people who may not, and I realize this, you know, it's possible that um, a lot of people may not have seen the Night Watch. What's the painting of, just so you, the audience gets a sense of it? Why is it such a cultural icon in the Netherlands? Um, yeah, so the, the official title of the painting is, is quite a mouthful, but essentially it is a um, militia company portrait. Its, it's uh, actual name is not the Night Watch, um, but what it shows is um, the militia company for the second district in Amsterdam. And so at the time, um, you had sort of civic guards, um, each of whom, which would be organized um, from members of the public, each of whom was responsible for uh, 
protecting uh, or defending a certain area of the city. Um, so uh, the tradition at the time is that they would commission a portrait of themselves, each company um, with the most prominent um, figures, you know, the leaders of the company uh, in front. Um, and the typical militia company portrait would be a bunch of these guys sitting around a table, um, you know, drinking beer and stuff. So um, Rembrandt decided to, as he often did, to turn the whole genre on its head and to make um, an action shot where they're basically um, uh, the, the leader, uh, Franz Banningkoch, um, and his lieutenant, um, Willem uh, van Rosenberg, are um, standing uh, near the center of the painting and, uh, and Rosenberg is, uh, is, um, uh, is getting ready to follow and Banningkoch is gesturing out to get his whole company to march out. So they're basically going to march out to defend the city. Um, it's a very raucous scene with a lot of movement and so on. Um, and it's come to sort of symbolize, um, you know, Dutch civic pride, um, as well as the fact that um, the, the Dutch, um, yeah, they really prided themselves on having this um, locally organized militias instead of, you know, being a military power, they were a trading power course. So it, it sort of symbolizes the Dutch way. One, one last question as transition to Mark. Is this the first effort of its kind that you know of, either in the Netherlands or the world, so that everything you're doing, uh, you're sort of having to invent for the purpose, or are you building on other conservation efforts that have been done elsewhere? Well, as far as the, the reconstruction of the missing pieces, um, I think that's, that's new. Um, because this is a very unusual situation, of course. The fact that the Night Watch was was cut down, um, that is not so uncommon. Many paintings were cut down. Um, but the fact that um, someone made a copy of it, a fairly faithful, um, semantically faithful, if you will, copy of it before it was cut down, uh, is very unusual. So there was not really much to draw on where you would try to use a painting from a different painter before the damage to try to learn a translation back into the style of Rembrandt um, to help envision what those missing pieces might have looked like before they were cut off. In the beginning of the reconstruction, you have two collections of images, one of the surviving area of the Night Watch and one of a smaller copy made by another artist. Can you give us an idea of how you reconstructed the missing pieces? Sure. Um, the, the smaller copy is made by a painter named Gerrit Lundens. Um, and as far as we know, it was commissioned by um, Franz Bonnenkoch, the, the main um, figure. And uh, it was commissioned to sit, um, to, to hang on his wall. So it's less than one fifth full scale. Um, so what you have here is um, a different painter. The painting is on panel, on wooden panel, whereas the Night Watch is on canvas. Um, and it's a much different scale. And of course, when you paint something smaller, you leave out certain details and the way that you paint faces is quite different than when you paint them large scale. So the challenge is to, to overcome all of these differences, essentially. You have a, a different palette that the two artists used. So the colors are different. You have different painterly style. You have a different texture because one is on canvas and one is on panel um, and they're using different size brushes and so on. So broadly, I. Uh, I approached this task in, in three main steps. The first was to do what I um, would call semantic matching. So the copies that were made 
the copy that was made, I should say, was faithful in, in the sense of leaving in all of the things that were in the night watch. You know, if there was a button on a, on a hat, then he also painted a button on a hat. And if there were four um, stars over here, he painted four stars and so on. But geometrically, it was not um, a perfect uh, grid scale copy. So you can't simply blow up the copy and lay it on top of the night watch and have it match. So if I'm going to have the computer recreate the missing parts, I have to have it so that those missing parts are perfectly contiguous with the existing painting. So I can't just you know blow up the, the small copy by London's um, by 5X and then translate those parts and stick them on the painting because then they won't align. Um, so I have to make sure that things geometrically align. And so the way I did this was to, uh, again, there's three neural networks that are at work here. The first neural network was trained to identify semantic matches between the two paintings. So that is to say, oh, there's a, a face and there's an eye and there's a pupil of the eye. And here is the same face, although it has a different appearance, of course. Um, semantically, it's the same, it's the same guy um, and the same eye. And, uh, and so I can make 10,000 or so matches you know, the tip of the spear, the tip of the spear, um, the heel of the boot, the heel of the boot, and so on, across the entire painting. And so this set of semantic matches would then allow me to solve for the kind of deformation, which we call homography, but it's essentially um, all the kinds of deformations that you might see if you were to move the camera. That is to say, if you move the camera closer or farther, you get bigger and smaller images. If you tilt the camera uh, around its main axis, then you get rotation. Um, and then you can tilt the camera, you know, yaw and pitch. And these will cause perspective distortions. For example, the parts that are farther away become smaller and the parts that are closer become bigger. So these are broadly called homographies in mathematical terms. And so I then use this set of matches to have the computers solve for the best homography um, because various things could have happened to the night watch since it was painted. It might have been stretched. It might have been skewed and taken off of its strainer and so on. So I, I don't have perfect confidence that the shape of the night watch now is the same as it used to be. And also um, it seems uh, that there's, there's some strange deformations in the upper right corner of the London's copy that um, give a sense that he was sort of trying to use perspective tricks because he couldn't measure it. So the bottom half of the painting is quite geometrically faithful. And it seems that he, the faithfulness geometrically kind of falls off above the height that one might be able to reach with uh, a measuring stick on the painting. This is just hy hypothesis. It seems also that London's uh, had some perspective effects, um, unintentional. Having done that, then the two images were uh, much more closely aligned. But still, if you look closely, you can see that London's sometimes makes a face too narrow or he stretches it out or the head is tilted slightly and so on. And what I would like when I'm teaching the computer in the final step to translate from this copy to Rembrandt um, is to understand how to translate the palette. I want to understand how to translate the, the texture, um, uh, the, the sort of um, brush strokes and so on. But I do not want to teach the computer bad habits about stretching faces and things like that, because I don't have enough faces 
where I have London's painted it this way and Rembrandt painted it that way to teach the computer any kind of sense of what the right thing is to do. You know, I, there's only 17 people in the whole painting. So what I wanted to do was to make a training set that, that could teach the computer to the things that I want without teaching it bad habits. So that's the second part. Uh, the second part was then given these pretty closely aligned images on the big scale to zoom in and then to have the computer tweak and nudge and pull um, like a rubber sheet, the copy so that each of its details was perfectly falling on top of the corresponding detail in, in the Rembrandt painting in the Night Watch. So this would then mean that I had a pair of images, one from the copy, one from Rembrandt, where all of the features are aligned, but they have different colors, they have different textures, they have different brushstrokes and so on. And then this was uh, the input to the third and final step, uh, which I call sending the neural network to art school, where now given these pairs of images, I could cut them each up into thousands of little overlapping tiles. Um, and you can think of this almost like flashcards where you could say, well, here's the front of the card and this is how Rembrandt painted the detail. And on the back of the card is how London's painted the same detail. I uh, designed a neural network that would let the computer guess what the Rembrandt tile would look like if it was only shown the tile from the copy. And after it got um, sufficiently good at this, in fact, when it, when it couldn't get any better, so that is to say the training was done, then I could use the trained network to translate the entire copy into the palette texture and so on of Rembrandt. And then finally, I can throw away the middle because I've already got the night watch and I, I, I don't need the inferior result of translating the London's copy to a Rembrandt-esque style, but I could retain the outer edges, which then were geometrically consistent with the original so that it would smoothly fade. It had all of the right colors. Uh, it had the right textures. In fact, a delightful little side note is that the neural network learned to hallucinate uh, the cracklure. So it, it learned in its uh, reconstruction to put cracks in the paint and to put it to, to make them the right color um, and the right scale, even though they weren't present uh, in the small copy, which is on, uh, of course, the cracks there are much smaller, but they have a different kind of geometry because it's on panel. So uh, in the end, the, the idea is not to recreate the genius of Rembrandt, because I, I think that's impossible, but rather what we wanted to do was to give an impression of what the painting might have looked like if it had not been cut down. Wow. Um, can you give us some idea of the sort of insight into Rembrandt's use of color uh, you were able to infer from modeling and training the color transform? Well, unfortunately, um, the neural network that learns to make this translation doesn't separate these factors. So I don't have um, color as a separate thing from texture, as a separate thing um, right. from, and so on. So really it's, um, this is oversimplifying, but, but broadly it's a kind of black box where one image goes in and that's the tile from the copy and another image comes out and that's the network's imagined Rembrandtization, um, if you will, of that tile. So I can say that it was interesting to see that the network learned 
um, how to imitate the kind of chiaroscuro shading technique for which Rembrandt is is famous. Um, you know, Rembrandt's figures have this um, beautiful glow. The faces kind of have a mysterious glow to them. In fact, in in the film business, they even talk about Rembrandt lighting. Um, and the background is um, is quite subdued. And if you look carefully at the painting, you can see that the figures who are in front are very vivid and bright and saturated. And then the farther you move back into the painting, the more um, sedated and brown and uh, and unsaturated the figures become. And so this is just a trick that you know Rembrandt was very good at, but other painters knew as well about how to um, kind of imbue a sense of depth into the painting that wouldn't otherwise be there. Um, and the thing is that uh, London's was not so good at that, or at least at this scale, he didn't really practice it so much. So the network had to learn how to take the sort of relatively flat um, images from the copy and make them more chiaroscuro shaded to make them more believably Rembrandt-esque. So you mentioned training neural networks to predict the geometric and color and texture transformations. Were these neural networks off-the-shelf software? Were they difficult to apply to your problem? They were not off-the-shelf, but um, these days there are a few key architectures, if you want. So when you're making a neural network, there's sort of two, two big parts to it. There's um, the so-called architecture, which is kind of a network diagram of how data flows through it and data is transformed as it passes from node to node from the input through um, possibly several hundred layers of nodes um, to the output. So that's the architecture. And then you have what are called the weights, which is the result of training the network to solve a particular task. Um, so there are certain architectures that are well established. Um, for example, I used a 50-layer ResNet, which is a residual network. That's This is the kind of network that's used to train computers to, to recognize, uh, to, to perform classification, which is to say to recognize what object or what thing appears in a photo, like to say, oh, well, that has, that's a fire truck and that's a kitten and, and that's a puppy. So you can, you can take a network like that and you can kind of copy it and wire it up in a funny way called a U-net. Um, and a U-net, that is because it's shaped like a, a U. So you, you, you start from an image and it distills it all down into its essence, if you want. It places it into a latent space. Um, and then it extrapolates back out to being a full image. So I, I utilize these kinds of architectures, which are well known in the literature, and then um, I had to tweak the wiring a little bit, and then I had to train them for my particular use case. So, yeah, I mean, the the total number of lines of code is probably fewer than 200 for the whole project, <laughs> um, believe it or not. And that's because um, there are very powerful libraries now that let you build these neural networks at a very high level of abstraction. You can just sort of say, well, look, here's a part, here's a linear layer, here's a convolution layer, and so on. And then the rest is taken care of for you and compiled down into extremely efficient uh, programs that will run on your, your GPU, your graphical processing unit, um, which makes them extremely fast. So I use PyTorch, which is one such um, uh, library for doing these, for designing these kinds of neural networks. Another big one uh, is called TensorFlow. So 
PyTorch is, was originally made by Facebook AI. Um, TensorFlow was from Google. So you, you have these sort of big players who are all trying to um, win hearts and minds by, by making very easy to use high-level neural network software so that a guy like me can still be in the game. Roland. Can I ask a very briefly digress into a legal question? You mentioned that there are 200 lines of code only for the whole project. Does somebody own that? Is that owned by the Rijksmuseum, by you, or is it retained by the people who licensed you the software? All the software that I use is, is free software. So um, that's just kind of an ethic that is in the AI community broadly. So all of PyTorch is free and open source. I have an arrangement with the Rijksmuseum that enables me to retain uh, copyright on, on software that I write, basically because the Rijksmuseum says, oh, look, we're a museum, we don't need it, we don't care. But, but under normal circumstances, it would be owned, um, copyrighted by, by the Rijksmuseum. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't consider it proprietary in any sense. I mean, anyone who wants the code can ask me and I'll happily give it to them because I'm, uh, you don't work in a museum to make money. Um. <laughs> but I, I, I want to add a little more context to that. I, I recall in our previous conversation, you mentioned that the Rijksmuseum has made available to the world its high definition uh, images and has not copyrighted those are charged access fees which is very different than some other institutions. Can you just give us a little bit of an insight into their thinking? Because that's an enormous policy decision. Yeah, um, the Rex Museum, I think, has been the world leader in this. Um, other museums have followed. You can now do the same thing with images from the Met, for example. Um, but um, many years ago, um, before I came to the Rex Museum, so before 2014, um, you know, we, we, we've always had photographers who photograph our collection but um, many museums have, you know, licensing departments, you know, pay us so much to license a copy of your image. And um, the fact is that if you search Google for an image uh, of a painting, you can find it. You can find it and it will be bad color. It will have bad resolution. It will have been through the, the JPEG compression mill 17 times, you know, it's just not good. So in general, um, both from a philosophical as well as a very Dutch pragmatic side, it made sense to make them all free and open because we want it so that if someone has an image of a painting in our collection, it looks beautiful. And then people think, oh yeah, I wanna to go to the museum and see that. Also, um, the analysis that they did said that the cost of running a licensing department would exceed the revenue generated by the licensing. <laughs> so that's the, the pragmatic side. But yeah, essentially the Rex Museum has made every image completely free. Um, and so it's public domain even. And we continue to do so. I think there's more than 400,000 images that are available online. Um, there's an API that you can use. So you can you know, search for images by artist or time period or medium or subject or whatever. And you'll get a direct link to download a high resolution image. And these aren't um, just pretty images. These let you zoom in and actually see brush strokes, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, most of the images are, let's say, 60 megapixels or so, which is, um, it's not an enormous number of pixels, but it's enough to, to make a, uh, to really see what's going on nicely. And then in the meantime at the museum, we're, uh, we're transitioning 
um, for various important works of doing you know, super high resolution, where now it's um, many, many gigabytes per photo. Um, you know, the Nightwatch, our highest resolution image is 5.6 terabytes. <laughs> um, wow. So that's not the kind of thing you can just have people downloading willy-nilly from the website, but still it's it's available. And in fact, uh, it's interesting uh, as a side note about my own history, the fact that the Rijksmuseum wanted to be so open with their digital assets is one of the major factors that attracted me to come work there because I wanted uh, my work to have the biggest possible impact. My, my mission statement is sort of to help the world access, conserve, and understand its cultural heritage. And so if you're working at a museum where they want everything to be accessible to everyone, um, then that's the way to do it. Can I go back briefly to pick up something that I wasn't sure I fully understood? You said there are 17 figures or characters or personages in the Night Watch, but I wasn't sure whether that was 17 in what was cut down or 17 in the reconstructed. Oh yeah, uh, I I should have mentioned that. I believe uh, it is in its current state. So yeah, there were there were um, two musketeers and a child um, that were cut off, um, but I wasn't counting those. Okay, if Mark. I recall the history correctly, I think the the seventeen were the people who contributed to paying Rembrandt uh, what was at that point an exuberant exorbitant amount of money. Uh, to to create the painting, some of the children and so on were I don't think paid anything. Yeah, so only one child was cut off. But as far as I understand, the two musketeers who who were cut off were paying for for the yeah. picture. But um, the other thing to note is that um, you know the painting was 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 painted in 1642 and it was cut down in 1715. So probably very few of the sitters were still alive when it was cut down. So they wouldn't have been been around to object. <laughs> and you, you mentioned in your talk that there was a small face in the back row on the left that may be apocryphal, but it's it's possibly Rembrandt's face. Are you including that as the 17 or is he kind of the, the extra personage? Um, yeah, that's among the 17 people in there. And in fact, um, if you try to count them, you probably won't get to 17 because there are some figures in the very, very back that are only depicted sort of part of their head. Um, another figure that most people miss, uh, there's this girl um, really in this you know glowing uh, dress. Um, and there is another, uh, what looks like a girl whose head you can partially see right next to her head, but almost no one spots it. So yeah, in those cases, the neural network probably doesn't recognize it as a head, but uh, it's not so important because they're not shaded in, in the way that I mentioned. So there are other important paintings that have been damaged or destroyed. Have you discussed the application of your techniques to those works? Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, it's a really interesting idea, um, but the problem here is uh, in, in extending this to those cases, is that this is really a translation problem that I'm solving rather than a composition problem. So you can imagine it's one thing to make a computer compose a novel, and it's a very different thing to make a computer translate a novel from English to French, let's say. So what I've done here is a kind of visual translation, whereas in the cases of paintings that are damaged, um, having been cut off, we don't have the source material to, to go back. You know, in, in other words, I have a, a novel that was translated from English to French, 
and then pages of the English novel were lost. And I'm using the French version to go back. Sort of that's what I have now. What is more likely to be useful in terms of extending this to other applications is to help understand what kind of effect different conservation treatments will have. You know, because broadly construed, what you have here is uh, a pair of images that are um, semantically matched to each other, but they may have different textures, they may have different palettes, and they may have some geometric distortion between the two. And that's precisely the kind of thing that happens when you conserve a painting. You take off the varnish, you clean it, you remove old retouches, you uh, and so on. And so in this case, you would have a pair of images, and we have lots of these. We have lots of training data where we have the before conservation and after conservation. Um, and so this system could then be used to teach a network how to imagine what it would look like if you would uh, clean the painting, if you would take off the varnish and refresh it, if you would remove old retouches and so on. And that could then lead to much better decision-making when it comes to trying to plan out a conservation treatment for a painting. Does that mean that famous Dutch paintings that may have been lost in the Second World War, that we have photographs or copies of that somebody may have painted, you can't really reconstruct because we don't have any portion of the painting that survived for you to train the network on. That's right, um, at least not with this technology. If you, if you think about how AI might extend itself in the future, then it is true that certain artists have a way of depicting things. You know, if you, if you look at a Van Eyck person, you can tell that it's by Van Eyck and it's not because the people looked like that. A memling looks like a memling because memling has a kind of distortion that he um, applies to the faces. And so you could imagine learning how to undo that. Um, and if you learned how, how Rembrandt takes a face and kind of, you know, makes it look like a Rembrandt, then you could imagine a, a, a broad translation system that might take a photo or a, a copy where the entire original is now destroyed and sort of try to translate it back into the style of the original artist. Um, but this would be, I think, far more speculative and wouldn't necessarily give us something that we can't do on our own, you know, with our, with our own imaginations, I guess. But as they say, you know, uh, prediction is difficult, especially about the future. So who, who knows? Uh, AI is evolving so fast that um, it, it can make your head spin. Um, and these advances are really all amazing and delightful when applied to the conservation world or the cultural heritage world. So I'm really excited to see what, what's possible in even just a few years time from now. Well, why don't we look at one prediction? Because I'm, I'm guessing that while you were working on this, you were imagining how colleagues in the conservation field were going to react to what you did. What did you expect and how have they in fact reacted if we can compare your anticipation or forecast to how things have worked out so far? Yeah, I, I expected that um, the conservators would be, um, would be delighted with it and that the art historians would be, would be deeply skeptical of it. Conservators, because they are very enthusiastic about seeing new technologies and how and imagining how it might help their work. But broadly, the, the reception has been positive. I mean, uh, this is, it, and I think a lot of that is about the framing, which is to say that um, this is not a project where I am saying or anyone is saying, oh, well, we're, 
we're recreating the genius of Rembrandt. And in the future, we won't need geniuses like Rembrandt at all. The purpose of this exercise is to help one imagine what it might look like. And it has um, met that goal because the, the fact is that um, when you add the missing pieces, as you mentioned, quite a lot was, was cut off of the left. When you make it a little taller, when you make it a little wider and so on, the composition of the painting changes dramatically. It, it feels like a completely new painting and it starts to make sense as a concert, as a, as a composition. You, know, you can see that the figures have a place to step into. Um, they were a bit cramped before. When the sides were cut off, it seems that more was cut off on the left in order to put the two main figures dead center in the painting. Um, but in the original, they were not dead center. They were going to step into the center, giving a sense of expectation and so on. Um, and so the art historians, the curators, uh, have really been positive about seeing that because just looking at the London's didn't quite do it because it's such a small copy and because it's in the style of London's and London's is, he's no Rembrandt. I have to thank you also. You, you've clarified for me one of the boundaries between a painter and a photographer. A photographer takes, has his own style or her own style, but the people they take all look very different. But your comment about, you know, a Rembrandt or, or somebody else's depiction of certain faces tend to look not like the person necessarily look, but as interpreted by their particular painting skills. You said you, you, you've constructed a 700 plus gigapixel image of the Night Watch with pixel size of five microns. For those of us that aren't able to sort of quantify and see in our minds what that really means, can you put that in terms that non-geeks and, and lawyers also will understand and explain so that we can see it as, as, as you're seeing it? Sure. Yeah. So when we when we talk about the resolution of a picture, it, it, one way is is to refer to the so-called sampling resolution, and that means that um, you have this image in the virtual world, and then you have the thing that you photographed, the painting in the real world. And if you would move one pixel to the right in your image, then this corresponds to moving some distance on the object. Um, so in the uh, 716 gigapixel image of the Night Watch. If you move one pixel to the right, you're moving five micrometers uh, to the right on the painting. The diameter of a human red blood cell is eight micrometers. So to image one red blood cell, I would require a two by two array of pixels to, to fit it in. Um, if you prefer thinking um, in DPI, That's laser, laser jet um, printer can do, let's say, 300 typically, a really fancy one could do 1,200. Um, this is photography at 5,080 DPI. So uh, one square inch would be 5,000 pixels wide and 5,000 pixels tall. So there would be 25 million pixels in one square inch. And if the, if the uh, picture were only an inch, inch by an inch, that would be quite a bit anyway. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And if, if you hear the resolution figure like that, it, it might just seem like, oh, it's, this is the cult of resolution. Like, why? Why would you do that? And the answer is that, um, you know, I'm, I'm a material scientist by training. So um, the way to understand the properties of material is to understand its structure at all scales. And when it comes to an oil painting, 
Um, one of the key bits of the structure is, is the paint and the paint pigment particles. So to make an oil paint, you take some, some solid material and you grind it up into a powder with linseed oil and, and then you paint with it. And so there's a structure that exists at this length scale. So when I photograph the painting at five micrometer resolution, I can see the individual paint pigment particles. Where there's a crack on the painting, I can look down into the crack like it's a canyon and I can see the layers of paint without having to take a sample from the painting. Um, when there's a conservation issue, um, for example, there's something called a lead soap, which is a sort of a little pimple um, that forms over hundreds of years um, and emerges on the face of the painting and then falls out and leaves a crater behind. Um, I can see those and I can't see them with lower resolution photography. Basically, this directly serves the interests um, of trying to decide what conservation treatment to perform, because then we can really see what's going on. Um, and another nice um, aspect to it is you can see the minute details of how Rembrandt has failed to completely mix the paints that he's mixing on his palette in his brush, because then he'll make a he'll make a stroke with his brush, and I can zoom in and see the individual unmixed paints in the in the paint strokes and so on. So you really um, you really can get so close that you can almost feel it being made. I think in your talk, you even mentioned you, you were able to see some bits of glass in the paint. Yeah, that's right. One of the um, kinds of pigments is called smalt. And smalt is basically blue cobalt glass that's been ground up into little bits. And um, glass being amorphous has a, has a certain way that it fractures when it breaks. And so the process of grinding up Smalt means that you get these little chips of glass, um, you know, just like when you when you drop a glass on the floor, that the pieces are very characteristic of glass. And you can zoom in and see the individual uh, smalt particles, and you can tell that they're smalt because they're blue, of course, but also because they're shaped like um, cleaved glass. So your, your keynote address at uh, PyCon in 2021 explores how you captured and constructed the 716 gigapixel rendition of the Night Watch. Uh, for the non-geeks in the audience, PyCon is a conference for the Python programming language community. The techniques you outline are a tour de force of sophisticated applied mathematics. It says here in the fine print that your doctorate is in materials science. How does one construct a career path from materials to science to what you do now? <laughs> um, yeah, well, uh, I have always been interested in way too many things. Um, and in some ways, that's a strength and in others, it's a weakness. So uh, when I was trying to choose a major as an undergraduate, I was on a mission to try to find the most broad field that I could get my hands on. Um, and when they pitched material science and engineering, they said, well, believe it or not, about a quarter of the scientists in the world today are working on some form or other of material science. Because material science basically unifies um, polymers and ceramics and metallurgy and uh, composite materials and so on and so forth. And it spans all the length scales from atomic uh, interactions all the way up to, you know, what shape should I make my landing gear? Um, so I majored in that. And um, and then for my for my PhD, I was deeply fascinated in the question of why nature makes trees everywhere, you know, like 
lightning is shaped like a tree and rivers are shaped like a tree and cracks are shaped like a tree and the vascular um, uh, vasculature and leaves and so on. Um, so I was able to study this by simulating flow through porous media. And this led to big writing big supercomputer simulations to simulate hundreds of thousands of different morphologies. And, and this then led naturally into thinking about um, solidification and coupling physics together. And in the end, the thing about cultural heritage or these days is that you have several factors coming together. You have um, new imaging uh, techniques. I mean, I, I can the camera that I'm using can take a single photo of 400 megapixels. You have high-speed internet, you have incredibly um, fast computers, and no one has been doing anything in this field broadly. So it's a wide open field with really fun and interesting challenges that span many, many disciplines. Um, and then I can just sort of run around and have fun um, while being useful instead of sort of you know, there's in some fields, there's no more low hanging fruit, you might say. Um, in many university departments, people can't talk to each other in the next office because they're so specialized. But what appeals to me is crossing disciplines. And so, uh, and, and low hanging fruit is always nice. So by moving into this field, I could, I could plant a lot of trees and then everything is low hanging fruit. So we've looked at the 20 micron image that you made and have already published. And it's amazing. It, it lets it lets us see individual brushstrokes, as you've mentioned. Why then go to the five micron resolution? Yeah, um, it's really because the features that we really would like to see to make our conservation uh, decision are smaller than twenty microns. So you know, essentially, there are some resolutions where you can't tell that the painting has cracks, and then you zoom in, and then you see that it has cracks, and there are some where you can see a brush stroke, but you can't see the fine scale. And so you zoom in and zoom in and zoom in. And as you continue to zoom in, new features will emerge that are relevant in, in ways that are of concern for the conservator. Basically, chemical processes that are happening that are causing a process of change, um, the ability to detect where very minute, um, what are called retouches. So in the past um, and today, when you perform a conservation treatment on a painting where there's damage, the conservator may try to mask the damage by just painting over it. And so there is a resolution at which you can be sure that you will see all of those. Um, and 20 microns is close to that, but you have to go smaller. Um, and then why five? Why not? Why not stop at something smaller? The answer is that the limiting resolution of the world's best camera is basically that. So five microns is, is one to one. My pixel pitch, my sensor pitch on my camera is five microns. So I can basically make a one-to-one -one lens that doesn't magnify anything, doesn't reduce anything, and then I get five micron resolution photos. So modern computers are fast and modern AI software is powerful, but neither is at the end of its expected evolution. Uh, if you were to apply similar techniques in 10 or 20 years time, you think the results would be different or better? Um, do you mean the techniques for the reconstruction? Or anything of the, of the work you've done, because you used AI not just in reconstruction, but in, in actually constructing the images, the, the photograph. Yeah, that's right. Yes, everything is developing so rapidly 
that it's, it's really difficult to predict even what we'll be able to do in one year. What I can say is that because of increases in internet speed and because um, people have more and more powerful devices in their hands, that's um, probably the most immediate relevant change for the public will be their ability to access these things. So there will be fully 3D, incredibly high resolution, multi-layered, what does the x-ray look like? What do the paint layers look like? What does the chemical composition look like? And so on. All embedded and accessible on your mobile device, which at some point may be an implant in your retina or your contact lenses or whatever. And then our ability to, to link what we do behind the scenes in the museum to the public will, will go up in a dramatic way. So um, I'm, I'm very interested in that. Also, uh, something we haven't talked about here, but which is uh, another huge interest of mine, is, um, is zooming out instead of zooming in. You know, so we, we have 400,000 images from across Western art, and those have a relation to each other. They have a story. There are, there are trends. And so if you're looking for an image and you can only describe it with words, um, how, do, how do you surface that? How do you um, find, you know, I would love to be able to query uh, to say, well, find me all of the paintings of a guy wearing red with a lion and, and to have it surface then all of the, the St. Jerome paintings, for example. But we can't really do that now because of limitations in the ability of the computer to understand these sort of abstractions that are present in art. We can do it with photos, but um, the ability to see what's depicted in a drawing, for example, is, is still uh, quite difficult because it's a drawing. It's very abstracted from the world as we, as we perceive it. So I think that as far as the reconstruction, that it will likely be even more and more realistic. But at this time, it's sort of diminishing returns for that problem, I think. We could make it more realistic, but it seems to already sufficiently convey the idea of what the painting would have looked like. And so, yeah, it's good enough. I don't know if you've heard this, but uh, during the shutdown due to the pandemic, at least in the United States, a number of museums have discovered that because of their online offerings, students at schools across the country who've never had the opportunity to visit those museums because they, they couldn't afford the travel, they didn't live near it, are suddenly getting a chance to see and visit the museums. So the kind of work you're describing is really going, I hate to say that it's of use in, in pandemics only. I would hope they'll continue to do this even as we come out of the pandemic, uh, which everybody hopes will be soon. But something else I'd like to ask your opinion on, the reconstruction that you said is on display only for this interregnum period of what, three months? Yeah, that's right. Um, most of us in the world are not going to get a chance to have that experience of walking in, remembering if we've been there before, remembering the impression the Night Watch made on us, and seeing how the painting shifts in perspective and how different it looks, uh, which you've described. Can you tell us anything about how have people who have been able to go there, the Dutch public that has been able to visit, if, if it's been open yet, you know, you gave us the reaction of conservators and historians, but you haven't told us what is the general Dutch public, how have they reacted to what you've done? Um, also very, very positively. And a frequent question is, well, are you going to keep it? 
um, because the the thing is that these missing pieces that were done in the computer were then printed out on on a canvas material, glued to metal plates and and placed around the actual night watch. So you can see them around the night watch. They're offset a little bit, so there's no uh, confusion about what is original night watch and what's added. Um, but they say, well, why don't you keep it up there? That will not happen because uh, we are a museum of of, uh, of Dutch culture and art, and this is not Rembrandt. Uh, it would be very uh, presumptuous, I think, to keep it to keep it up there. But my, my hope is that there will be some place where possibly a full scale uh, printout or other kind of reconstruction could be viewed, just to get the the sense. Because what's really missing when you see it on your computer screen is the sheer size of it. I mean, this is a really big painting and you yes. know, you just can't capture that um, with a small screen. But yeah, of course, the the small version will live on on the website. So you'll be able to, to see that. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, you've got to get here before October 13th if you want to see it in person. If I'm not mistaken, I, I, I don't remember if it was the Night Watch or another painting in the Netherlands that was knifed at one point. Will your images of the Night Watch or any other paintings that the Rijksmuseum is doing at these super uh, high resolutions be a kind of emergency room treatment if any other damage like that happens to a painting? That you'll, you, you will be able to fix it and, in that sense, keep it on view as it was rather than saying, well, this is not Rembrandt, this was not, you know, Van Dyck or, or somebody else's work. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the fundamental sort of pillars of conservation is documentation. You know, just just documenting what the painting is like, and sometimes unexpected things happen. You know, sometimes your cathedral burns down, sometimes your painting is stolen or it's destroyed in a bombing campaign, or who knows what. One would never be able to replace a, a great work of art if it's destroyed. But still, having a knowledge of what it looked like um, at the to the nth degree in three dimensions, chemically, and so on, it would be a real pity if we didn't do that. And then something bad happened. You know, of course, uh, as you know, uh, Notre Dame, I believe, is uh, the the reconstruction is is assisted by the fact that there were drone photos, high resolution drone photos, and laser scans that were taken um, before the fire. But the higher resolution, the better. And of course, uh, if it's partially damaged, if an artwork is partially damaged, then the ability of a restorer to go in and see exactly what it used to look like uh, is dramatically improved if you have this very high resolution uh, data, as well as having 3D, as well as having knowledge of which pigments were used and so on. So the more data, the better. We've been talking a lot about AI and its forecasting, and its predicting. Um, humans have a rather good capacity to exercise hindsight. As you use hindsight and you look back at the work you did on Operation Nightwatch, is there anything you would have done differently if you were starting out now knowing all that you've learned from doing? What I can say is that uh, everything is harder than it looks. But of course, that's a sort of universal refrain. So the amount of effort that was required to actually pull off this um, 700 plus mega a gigapixel photo is a lot higher than 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 we ever thought. Um, the depth of field of the camera is incredibly narrow. You know, you basically have one eighth of a millimeter 
depth of field. So if it's too close or too far, it will be uh, blurry. Um, and the painting with the camera, the, the painting moving and the air currents with that shallow a depth of field, you were able to deal with that. Yeah, that's right. So basically, I have to chase the painting a little bit. And I what I didn't mention in the talk is the fact that um, moving the camera to place it in front of the painting blocks the air currents that are naturally occurring in the room. And so I ended up having to model that um, because the way that the painting will move is predictable. So when you block the air currents, the painting moves away from you in a certain predictable way because the air currents were pushing the painting. Yeah, it's complicated. But these kinds of things, you know, just the 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 tiny details on the tiny details on the tiny details that you need to pull this off mean that, um, yeah, it's a it's a good thing to have done, but not necessarily a good thing to be doing. <laughs> It was uh, real suffering. So I'm glad um, that I only have to do it probably twice because I can expect that when the conservation treatment is done, uh, we'll do the whole thing over again. The same resolution before and after. And um, yeah, uh, now I know about all the pitfalls, but um, some of these things I just yeah I couldn't have predicted. I, I have to tell you, the four of us, feel it's an honor and a privilege to have been able to have you as a speaker. Your work is extraordinary, but as a material scientist where you say you wanted to be able to go across all the dimensions from very small to very large, you've done that in this talk for us uh, <laughs> in a really, if you'll pardon the expression, illuminating way. And thank I want to thank you very, very much. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Mark? That was astounding. And, and uh, thank you. This was... Uh... Uh, eye-opening in, in, in so many ways. We thank the American Bar Association for their generous sponsorship and support of the production of this podcast. Our theme music was composed and performed by the very talented Ben Rosenblum. We welcome questions and comments from listeners. Send email to comments at mindthegapdialogues.com. We read all comments and questions and we'll try to respond in the letters section of a future episode. If you are writing about a particular episode, please do mention the specific episode number. Please also do include pronunciation tips to help us properly say your name when we reply in a subsequent episode. See you next time on Mind the Gap, Dialogues on AI. The views expressed in these podcasts are solely those of the speakers and not of their employers or organizations. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.